And all I could think to say was, in Jesus' name, start breathing, mm -hmm. lungs, start working. And I just made a mark of a cross on his head. And remarkably, he started to take deep breaths. I surprised myself, really, and I wouldn't necessarily have normally done that. But I just knew, you know, when you know, I just knew this is the thing to do. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired, and I'm really excited this week to have James Ray on the program. How are you doing, James? Hi, buddy. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. So it's 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 amazing to think that just 24 hours ago, James and I, with another, I'm guessing, around about 100 men, were in the Brecon Beacons on the mountains. We'd spent... Uh, four day, three nights uh, on the mountains, having an absolute blast with Extreme Character Challenge, XCC. That is what James heads up. And uh, I am relatively knackered and, and, and yawning a lot today. So I hope, I hope not, I'm not, if I yawn during the show, it's not because you're boring me senseless, buddy, but uh, um, just general body weariness, but real satisfaction, a real sort of afterglow from having spent time with 100 men being extremely real, being extremely vulnerable, discussing all sorts of things, everything coming out from, you know, visiting prostitutes and suicide and drug addiction and alcohol, you know, all, everything that you'd expect, infidelity, and men sort of choosing to make better choices, facing up to their responsibilities, having made bad choices. Uh, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves on it, but it's, it's a ministry I absolutely love and uh, you're going to hear about more about that in due course. But James, why don't, why don't you just backtrack it? The purpose of this podcast in general is there's so much cack news, there's so much bad news. And I want to bring up various buddies over the weeks from completely different walks of life and just hear not triumphalistic, but triumphant stories of, of overcoming adversity, of pressing in when things get rough, of, of, of where faith, you know, rubber hits the road and really makes a difference. And uh, you would be the epitome of that. You'd be someone who, who, who's journeyed a long time, takes some knocks, but has also got a good story and is empowering others to live well. So go and go back. I, I actually don't know that much about your backstory in terms of childhood and stuff. You know, what was the journey there? Well, uh, I grew up in Norfolk, one of four sons. Uh, uh -huh. And my, I've got a eldest, uh, my eldest child's a boy as well. Uh, in fact, both, I've only got boys. Uh, so he's, I think he's the fifth or sixth generation of only boys in my family. Wow. So it was this kind of quite male-focused thing. And we crashed around in Norfolk a lot, a bit quite a sort of outdoor life, uh, running around outside a lot. Um, parents weren't really into us watching TV. In fact, I had to pay 20 pence if I wanted to watch a film on TV or, <laughs> or, or sorry, on, on TV. And most of the stuff we wanted to watch, we weren't allowed to watch. Um, and it's sort of pretty fun childhood. I remember sailing a lot on the Norfolk Broads. I remember going in the mountains. My dad had a passion for the hills and for mountaineering. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that's, that's the story there. Really grew up in a Christian family. Parents have a very strong Christian faith. I remember lots of meetings in our house, lots of uh, times where we were kind of engaged as a family in, in church things, but also Christian things, leading things. So that's my background. Um, and then I left home when I was um, 18. Mm -hmm. and went to immediately to work in a boarding school in Cambridge. And I, I, my dad actually was pretty smart. He, I think they offered a kind of gap year type post, but he said, oh, no, James won't be doing a gap year. He, he wants to coach. He wants to teach. Mm -hmm. And so the school were quite – they actually had a vacancy, I think, in the, in the PE department or there was a bit of a space. So I immediately got given a couple of lessons, found myself age 18 just – birthday's in August. So in September, I was a month 18, teaching other – 17, 18 year olds sport, but I kind of like that challenge. And then mm -hmm. so I lived in Cambridge for quite a while. The school were really good to me. I stayed there. I should have met, I should have told you as well. I met, I met my now wife when we were 12. She, uh, she oh, beat wow. me in tennis. 
<laughs> so uh, I didn't speak to her for a couple of years. So I, I found that really a puzzle in, the, in my all-male environment. I didn't know that girls beat boys at things. Now I know that they do it all the time and, and quite regularly and <laughs> yes. quite, quite easily. Um, so that was a bit of a shock. So I didn't really speak to her for a couple of years, but then we started going out at age 14. And we've been together ever since. So yeah, that's the kind of that's the kind of childhood. Some happy times, but difficult ones as well. Can you share any of those? Uh, yeah. So my mum and dad struggled for money from time to time. My dad believed very strongly that God would provide, and so um, there were times I remember where we didn't really have anything because we were waiting for God to provide. Because obviously now, now I work specifically with men. I grew up obviously in that male environment. So just growing up, one of four boys, there's sort of a a busyness in that kind of world where I felt that there was a lot of stuff going on all the time and sometimes it was hard to be heard. I think that's particularly how I saw it. So I, I look back now sometimes with some regrets. Also, I don't think childhood is very easy. Certainly my end wasn't. and I couldn't wait to grow up, couldn't wait to, to just have responsibility and, and get involved in things. And you went straight to being a, an adult in the sense that you were teaching. Was, was that your university or did you go to university after, after that? So then uh, actually the school, very gracious, really good headmaster at the time, a guy called uh, Reverend Dr. John Barrett. And he was very kind after a few years of me being in the school. He called me into his study once and said, look, we're actually, uh, we're, we're wasting your life because we're paying you to be here and you're doing a good job for us. But you're you know, 19, 20 years old and you should really be at university and so if you don't go soon, you might never go. And then you might leave this job and not be able to get another job at the last level that you're operating at. So it was very, mm. I hadn't really seen it like that myself. He very sweetly said, you know, if you can find, we don't really want to lose you, so if you can find a course at the university. Uh, I was in Cambridge at the time. So if you could find somewhere at Cambridge or somewhere else that you could go to uh, university whilst remaining here and do the two together, we'd happily help fund it. And that's what they did. They very kindly uh, sort of sponsored me to university while I carried on being a teacher and a, a housemaster in a boarding house. And so, uh, yeah, I went to university and then did a teaching PGC on top of that. Um, and then actually since then done other courses at universities. But I, I remember now I look back fondly with, uh, on that because I think it was very gracious of him to, to say that I would have missed that one. Mm. And then I think, didn't you go off to Switzerland at some stage to teach there? Yeah. So then I, I alongside this, I joined the Naval Reserves um, we lived in Cambridge. We got married. My wife came back down from Durham University. She graduated and we got married that same summer. She came and moved into the boarding house with 50 teenage boys. We were what's called, a, I was an assistant housemaster, so a deputy, if you like, underneath the housemaster. So we looked after about 50 teenage boys. This guy, uh, my housemaster was the boss. I was the kind of understudy and I would fill in for him every other weekend and we did that together. I used to live with a guy who told me about the school in Switzerland uh, where it's a British boarding school in Switzerland, but it basically ran a big, heavy outdoor, holistic kind of ethos. It was really big into the outdoors. It was a Kurt Hahn school, inspired by Kurt Hahn, set up by a chap called John Corlett, mm -hmm. similar to Gordonston, but in the Swiss mountains. So like Scotland, but without the rain. Um, and so <laughs> I was really interested in that school. And we went out for a summer school once to help out, uh, teach on that. And I fell in love with the place. And then fortunately, at the time, one of the houses came up for uh, the house parents role. So it's actually, a, they employ couples uh, which is quite unique and, and I think quite brilliant and so we applied loads of other people applied I can't remember how many hundreds of people applied but we were super young I was 25 at the time and, and somehow we got the job and I think somewhat somebody reported somewhere that we were the youngest house parents ever employed by 10 years so it was a bit of a wow. big step for us but also 
slightly miraculous. Yeah, we were we were just surprised, but also blown away. We just uh, had our first son, Samson. He was born, so he was a uh, coming up one year old when we. I think he was ten months when we went out there, and uh, then we were there for five years, living in just the other end of the lake from Lake Geneva, from Geneva, and up in the mountains, a place called Villar. It was an amazing time. Gorgeous. Yeah. We, we traveled around the world a few years ago and of our 34 countries we went to, I, I think we'd say Switzerland was certainly the most beautiful and absolutely gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah, it's stunning. And the advantage of working there is that you earn Swiss francs, so it's a bit less expensive. Going back now as a tourist, it's, it's killer on the, on the budget. It, yes, it is. Um, and then I think our, our paths first crossed when you were running Restore Hope Latimer. Was that the next chapter? Yeah, that's right. So in Switzerland, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in the mountains. I was paid to take kids skiing. I got paid a really good salary. And I think Swiss tax in that canton was something like 8% or 11%. It wasn't, wasn't much. So in effect, we were getting quite rich, 19 weeks holiday, living for free. And so life became really good. Uh, and we loved our job. We loved uh, living in this in a sort of big house with 50 teenage boys, uh, 14 to 18. We, we loved it. We thought it was brilliant. But I remember one day sitting on my balcony uh, overlooking Mont Blanc, the, 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 the Mont Blanc Massif, and the sun set right across from us. It was the snow-capped mountains, the Alps, with the sun going down. They go pink in the evening sometimes. Mm, it was this yeah. beautiful moment. And I was sitting there, and I was smoking a cigar, drinking some fine wine, because the school <laughs> we were at was pretty expensive school fees. So the clientele, the parents who would send their children there, generally had quite a lot of money. So generally they had nice things. So they were very kind that when they would give you a present, it was generally nice. Yeah. So I would end up drinking some very nice things, uh, some nice wine and uh, wearing nice clothes and whatever it was. And so I sat down and I remember sort of almost saying a prayer, saying to God, the prayer, it was sort of almost a prayer, but it was more of a feeling. And the feeling mm-hmm. was, uh, we've done well, haven't we? Mm. And it was like this kind of team, him and I, we're doing okay, you and me. This is a pretty good partnership. And I was drinking fine wine and I was smoking a cigar. And I had a bit of an out-of-body experience. It wasn't an actual one, but I sort of had a sense of what I looked like. Mm. And... And at the same time as having a sense of what I looked like, I felt a little bit appalled by what I'd just felt and said. Yeah. Also a little bit shocked by the pomposity of it. And then I had this semi-experience of, of like Jesus looking over my shoulder. And I had this idea that he had like a rucksack of my life on his back. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of looking over my shoulder at the view with me. And then he was looking at me as well with the cigar and the wine. And then that pompous statement of, we're doing quite well together, aren't we? Mm. And I felt him just say, uh, is this it? Is, and, and it was a very open question. It was very sincere, as if if I said yes, this was what I was going to get. And as he asked me that question, is, is this it? Is this, I had this idea that he might drop the rucksack and we'll kind of make home here. But as he asked that question, I just felt sick, like almost shocked into awake, thinking, no, this is, not, this is nothing like it. This is crazy, not it. Mm. I don't care about drinking fine wine or smoking cigars. I, I don't want to be pompous and sit here and look at the view and think I'm great when I'm sort of living on borrowed time. This is not even my building. I, I work here and the view is God's and he made it. I didn't do anything to that. I'm mm-hmm. drinking wine that I've been given and smoking cigars are probably not health, healthy and becoming pompous. <laughs> and I just felt sick. And so I um, threw the cigar in the kind of barbecue chimney thing we had. And I was about to throw the wine on the plants, but I thought I'll just finish that. Uh, yeah. And then I, I, I kicked the door. I remember sort of had something in my hands. So I booted the door of our apartment open and just said to my wife, we've got to leave. We've got to go. Wow. And she said, oh, thank goodness. 
And for about six months, she'd felt that we were sort of spiritually, morally rotting in our wow. souls by just the, just the comfort, just the beauty, just the, the ease of it all. And Switzerland's a remarkable place, as you know, you know, as you're saying, it's just this beautiful chocolate box, beautiful, beautiful place. But actually, if you scratch the surface, it's as broken as anywhere. In fact, in some ways, it is a broken utopia. It's a, it's a perfect place with a, a brokenness underneath that you can choose to ignore or uh, we can face. And we realized that our life was, we never wanted to just sit there and go skiing uh, and drink fine wine. That was never really part of the plan. Doesn't, nothing wrong with those things. Just wasn't really, that's not my ambition. And I suddenly thought of all the things I did want to do, lives I wanted to impact, but also just people I wanted to meet. And they weren't all based in Switzerland. In fact, some would, could never afford to be in Switzerland and we were missing out. So we basically resigned um, and we got ready to leave. In the process of that, uh, what specific, quite a few of the boys in the house were, yeah, I don't think they didn't want us to go particularly. And one of them especially had a really tough time when we, when we announced we were leaving. He, he basically locked himself in his room for a few days and we couldn't, no one really knew what's wrong with him. He wouldn't really say. Mm. And then eventually he said to me, you're the second dad to leave me. And you see oh, his father had yeah. died when he was 12 and he was 14 now. Mm. And we'd become his parents. I realized the impact of that. And so we called his mum from Belgium. She lived in just outside Brussels. And we said, you know, I think you might come and see him. He's really, really upset by this news. And, and she was there for a day or so, I think. And then they asked to meet us together, the, the mother and the son and Emiko and I. But I remember vividly, he sat across my living room from me and the other sofa and we were facing him. And he, he just looked me straight in the eyes and he said, I told you you were the second dad to leave me and I, I, I don't know how to deal with that. Um, but I've been talking with my mum. Would you be my dad? Oh, my goodness. And it was just this amazingly powerful moment where I remember trying to sort of sense what, what my wife Emiko was thinking. Like, what do you think? I'm up for it. But, what, you know, trying to sort of look at her without looking away from him. But I could feel sort of, I felt her... I felt that she was at peace. It just felt she, she wasn't sh shuffling or moving, just felt okay. So I was able to say, yeah, I, I would be deeply honored. And so we now have this beautiful adopted boy. He's now 26, named Jean. And so we have three children. We talk about it. Uh, we, I, and it took me a while to embrace that properly. He was very sweet. He's been very gracious to me. He, he changed his name. He's, he, I'm, I'm registered on his phone as daddy. And mm. we see him quite a lot. I think initially I thought it was more of a godfather role. I'll just, I'll just kind of keep an eye on him. But he's really taught me actually a lot about what it means when you take responsibility, but also when you say yes to something. And yeah, we spent a weekend together actually in Switzerland. He's just moved to Geneva to do a master's. And so we were there a couple of weeks ago together. It was a really special time. And I realized that my role in his life as, as daddy is, uh, is not just as a kind of uncle or a godfather. It's, it's somebody to, to really speak into him and to really think carefully about him and, and, and care for him. So... We've tried to do that for a few years. Mm. So yeah, then we left. So we left Switzerland like that with this adopted son who stayed actually in the school. Um, so he's never actually lived in our home. He stayed at the school and then used to come and see us on the holidays. And we moved back to the UK. Initially, I thought, uh, you know, the story I was telling you about where we were living and what we were doing. I, you know, a lot, a few job offers. You know, when you're around people with influence and power, life can seem so easy. So so many things were popping up. We thought we might go to South Africa and get involved in some company. And I, at one point, was flying to Colombia to go and set up a family office for someone. And then slowly, as, we, as distance between us and the school uh, increased, so time and also we moved to London for a bit, 
those job offers sort of seemed to disintegrate almost like like literally like they were thin air or like trying to reach into a cloud. Mm-hmm. And I went from being somebody super confident that, hey, look, we resigned, but but we're great. So everything will be fine. Yeah. To then coming back to the reality of life, which is actually when you live around money and power, there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of chatter, but actually I don't I'm not sure how much how sincere people were or at least how helpful that would have been for us. And so I remember vividly in October, we were living in London, we'd committed to rent an apartment, a house in West London, which was super expensive. And so we, we knew that our, you know, we, we had X number of months on the contract, we had to, we had to be there. And I remember we had a, a giving service at church. And um, my, my wife, Emika, is so much more generous than me. The general rule is that she makes the decision on giving because she'll give more and I'll give less. Mm-hmm. So we both were, it was, we were encouraged to, to think of a number to, to, to write down on the form. And we both were miraculously thought of the same number. So I thought, this is fantastic. Uh, you know, I must be getting more generous. And so we, Emika filled in the form. And as we were walking home, she said, oh, you know, I'm really, I'm really pleased. I think that's the right thing to do. And then she said to give that number every month. I think that's the right thing. <laughs> and I thought it was a one-off number. Yeah. She thought it was monthly. And so what she'd actually done, uh, I don't know whether she did it deliberately or not, but she'd just given away. So within six months, we were going to have nothing. We'd given up, we had rent committed, and then we had some savings committed, and she just committed to give all that away. Um, very gracious. So there was a period of time, a week or so, where that, we lived with that. We just thought, okay, so in six months, I was actually five months, I think, we're going to have nothing, uh, nothing left, no job, no house, no money, nothing. All the savings have gone. And actually, very sweetly, slight side stories that the, the pastors of the church uh, and some good friends of ours, Nikki and Pippa, called and said, just come across your form. It does seem like you've given an awful lot, considering your circumstances, they knew what we were doing. Um, mm-hmm. Are you sure? Is that really what you meant? And, and they were quite sweet in saying, I think you should probably rethink that just to make sure that the five months' time isn't a killer. And that was very kind of them and very wise because it actually turned out that we, we would have really struggled. But there was, that, there was that gap of a week where every day I think I cried just thinking, what are we going to do? Yeah. And then slowly at the same time, I was really struggling because all these amazing jobs that I thought I was going to go to. And again, remember, I told you earlier deliberately that I was the youngest housemaster for 10 years by 10 years because there's a whole load of pomp that then just fell away. Mm. All of that became irrelevant. Who, who, who cares? I'm now in London with my expenses above my head and two children by now we had Arthur out in Switzerland just before we left and no job. And then I had to start admitting and it took me a while because I used to make up all sorts of excuses to what I was doing. Uh, it's amazing how the word unemployed is so difficult to say. And so I would say so many other things like oh, I'm just taking a break or I'm reviewing next things. I've got a few irons in the fire. Yeah. And there's all these phrases I would use to avoid saying I'm unemployed and I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But it, and so it took another season, another few weeks for me to start to be able to say that out loud to myself and to others. And that's, that was a really testing time for me. And then eventually we, we had a conference booked in that we were going to go and speak at. And um, it was just, it had been the dire for ages. So we went along and we were in this sort of despair time. And I remember Mika and I were praying in a car, God, if please help us. We've got nothing going in the next, in two, week, uh, two months time, I think it was, we, we'll have nothing. And we met someone at the conference who we'd sort of had links with before and him and his wife were there and they were looking for a director of their new you know, charity that they've been running on a piece of land 
where they wanted to help families who are in need and give space to people. And so that's where, uh, where you were referring to this place called Restore Hope at Latimer. Uh, that's where that job came up and miraculously it was a, the perfect timing for them and for us. And so within a couple of weeks, uh, you know, we'd been employed by them and then they offered a house with the property, with the, with the job. Mm-hmm. So suddenly our, our employment problem was resolved as well as the accommodation problem. And so for, I think, five years thereafter, that's what we went and did. Brilliant. And that is where uh, Glow, our charity, Great Lakes Outreach's offices still are. So that's that's how we met, sort of bumping into each other and catching it first time there. Now, yeah, any five years there, any sort of beautiful stories of, you know, the impact of the work of Restore Hope Latimer? Yeah, I mean, I think what impacted me most, a few things, I, it, it was, it was, I see it as a bit of a shadow time for me, actually. I see it as a bit of a time where I was uh, almost going backwards or, or, or like walking on a treadmill. I don't know how to, I, I mean, I think in a way that's a bit of an understatement and mis, mis communication about what was going on a lot of good was happening but personally I was quite frustrated wondering what am I doing here mm. it felt like I'd moved from uh, something quite big to something that was, was more grassroots and really needed a lot more work and sort of driving a minibus with three mums from the local housing uh, estate to these fields and taking a couple of kids here and there and going to visit a dad who's struggling for custody of his children where hanging around with people who really had very little and remembering again the struggles of that and remembering again and connecting with, again, the battles around that and also finding hope in that. So it was pretty powerful. And I worked for a chap called Gary Grant who uh, runs the entertainer toy company, brilliant Christian man. And, and he has an amazing brain. He's excellent at business. He really taught me masses about running a business and being good with numbers and, you know, staying true to business plans and things like that, which are obviously coming from a teaching background. I really had no idea about. Hmm. Um, so I found that really powerful, but yeah, after five years, we felt that that was coming to an end again. And I think I felt I'd uh, done what I could or that that was the season. And suddenly there's a combination of two things happen at the same time. All along through my whole life, I've had some sense of calling to kind of, I don't know if the word ministry is the right word. I don't really know what the word is, but to, to lead, to point people to, to Jesus, but also almost to to step up into that role officially to say, look, if there's someone here who's going to do it, I don't mind being that someone. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that translates into what we now probably say is like a priestly role or a priestly calling. And I remember I've heard a lot, obviously, about people being called into church, called into ministry, but specifically in the UK, called into the Church of England. And I was always of the opinion that everyone should do that. You know, good people, the church needs good people, so good people should join, hurry up. And I would tell everyone else, go on, go for it. Yeah, yeah. And I remember once thinking that, well, I feel like I'm a little, a little bit like a guerrilla warrior, that I have my style, my approach. But essentially what I do, I had this little picture of, I kind of watch the generals go in and out of their tents and make decisions. And when they make the army move, I follow on and, and fight in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, that, that's sort of semi-effective. But why don't I just join in with what they're doing and offer them my arms, if you like. This is, you know, hey, hey, why don't you deploy me where you want me to go rather than me just following you and deploying myself. Mm. And so I felt that that was a kind of big sense of the call into the Church of England. And so I I started the process of exploring ordination. And at the same time, to to a friend, I I was introduced to this organization called 4M uh, or Fourth Musketeer at the time, which is the idea of all for one and one for all. In the service of the king, this is this kind of thinking behind this movement of taking men out in the wilderness. And I initially came across it was a Dutch idea set up by a few guys, specifically a friend of mine, Henk, who I didn't know at the time, but 
they kept inviting me to go on this thing with men. I looked online and thought, no, I don't like men's stuff. Most of it's mm-hmm. naff, generally lame and also quite low impact, whereas actually what I'm seeing is that men are the cause of huge problems in the world. So yeah. a bacon sandwich and a, a, a back rub isn't really what we need. Mm. Um, but they kept asking, they kept asking. There's a guy, Gideon, he's a friend now, and he really pursued me in a way that was quite uh, difficult to avoid. So eventually um, they invited me to go to the Belgium Ardennes for an adventure with them. And uh, as I've told you, I had this adopted son and he was back home in Belgium at that time. So they said, look, it's in, in September and um, there's a free ticket. We'll pay for you to come uh, and you can bring anyone. So I thought, actually, okay, a friend of mine had just come back from India, a guy called Miles. I thought, hey, he'll love this. And he and I could go together and have a cool weekend. And if it's rubbish, which I was expecting it to be, we can get in my car and go and see my adopted son. So it'd be, it's kind of winning on all fronts. Mm-hmm. So I said, yeah, fine, I'll come. And we got there and uh, it was in the middle of nowhere. And I'd said to my, this guy, Miles, don't worry if it's rubbish, we'll leave. And then one of the first things they said was, oh, could we have your car keys, please? Because we need to move your car. And um, so it was long and the, the short story is that we ended up without any means to leave. <laughs> and so I suddenly found myself in yeah. and uh, it was all in. There was no choice. And off we went into this adventure and it was brilliant. And, and what I'm doing now, the Extreme Character Challenge, is essentially a, a hybrid of that from that same organization. We're now in 18 different countries, but the one in the UK is specifically morphed towards, well, how do we get more guys to come on this? Yeah. Because what I impact, what impacted me was so brilliant, but it was very Christian initially. The one I did was very much a kind of, it made a lot of assumptions that you would know things before you arrived and mm. you would believe certain things before you arrived. And I thought, well, if we didn't have those assumptions, how would we get the same impact on the same kind of guys and their friends? Yeah. And so I, what I saw, I loved. And they were very gracious. They, they asked me then to help set something up in the UK and to help be involved globally. So that's what's been going on since for the last six years now. I've been running what we now call the Extreme Character Challenge Movement and overseeing that a little bit globally as it, as it operates as 4M in different countries around the world. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there i'd so appreciate it also it's word of mouth isn't it so gossip this these podcasts to other people get them to subscribe give us a great review absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right now let's get back to the podcast I wanted to wait until I'd done one before doing a podcast, although I wanted to do a podcast sooner than later because I just I just want to get other people to experience it. I mean, and now I have done it. I can say I'd love every man listening to this to sign up. I know all you women listening to this, you want better men, don't you? And they will come back better men. So if you're married or your boyfriend or whatever, sign them up. But but uh, you know, even just from a few nights ago, tell, tell that great story about that, that uh, the guy who had asthma. And, and, you know, this is a current story from, from the, the last one we just done together. Yeah. So 
the kind of premise is let's get away from everything and go into an, an unknown environment, which is challenging. And let's experience challenge, absorb challenge, but also uh, let's do that in a way that's, that's holistic mind, body, soul. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just physical. In fact, the physical is almost irrelevant, but it is key. But equally, it's not just moralistic either. It's also spiritual in terms of the soul. What's, what, what's our deep need in the soul? And so we, we just stretch ourselves really as guys on those three areas. But it is, in order for it to be stretching, it has to be stretching, and therefore it's tough. Um, not superhumanly tough, and the human body, the human soul, mind, body, soul is, is remarkable. Yeah. I, as yet, I've not seen anybody stretch beyond what they're, they can't achieve. It's just they wouldn't have believed they could achieve it. Yeah. And so we get to this stage at one point where people are, are stretched. They just feel stretched. And for some, that's a real issue because they've never been there before. Mm-hmm. Others, and actually, you know, you're a good example. You've, you've stretched yourself a lot through your life, so you're actually used to some of that. And, and in, interestingly, some of the guys who come, we had a lot this time who've been through things like rehab or homelessness or addiction. They also seem like they can cope. You know, guys who've been in prison, they often cope better because they also have really been stretched and, and they tend to be able to absorb a stretch uh, better than those of us who've had more of a narrow upbringing or narrow ex- life experience. Uh, but anyway, one of these guys was on, on this Extreme Character Challenge. And I have a, a support team. They've all done it before, so they're there to be with the men, not to kind of lecture them. And one of them was was just kind of praying. And he, he had this sense that there's someone on, on this trip who uh, was going to struggle with breathing difficulties, like asthma, he said. And that instead of it actually being a medical condition, it was actually going to be something that God wanted to use for his glory. And, mm-hmm. and this friend, uh, John, Jonathan Campbell, he put that message out to us on the WhatsApp at 11.33. And I've got the message on my phone, 11.33. At 12.02, so 29 minutes later, one of my team announced that there's a guy here in this team number who is struggling with his breathing. He hasn't got asthma. He's got something else where his airways are blocked. Um, and he struggles, but an inhaler helps. So does anyone have an inhaler? And we said, oh, yeah, we've got an inhaler. This guy's got an inhaler. So when he gets there, he can have that. Mm-hmm. So it was like, fine. And I said, but mind you, by the way, pray for him. So off we went. Because I said, it could be that guy. I think it's that guy. And then Johnny said, yeah, pray this him. I think that's the thing. So that was at 11, uh, sorry, 12.02. Then at 8.30 that night, by now it's dark. And I had some guys coming over to me, crashing over in real stress and panic, saying there's a guy down there in our team. And... He's collapsed and he's not breathing. He stopped, he stopped breathing. He's, he, he was struggling to breathe and now he's stopped breathing. And we think he's dying, they said. He's dying. Hmm. So uh, that's not a nice thing to hear from my end, obviously. Um, we're hmm. responsible for the men and we take that seriously. So, you know, I think my natural reaction would have been very concerned and panicked, you know, worry. Uh, right, wow, all, the, all of the safety uh, training kicks in, all of our experience kicks in at that moment. But because of what had happened earlier, something else kicked in at the same time, which was, this is that guy. So I said, what's, what team number? And they said, the team number. I said, what's his name? They said, his name. I said, it's him. It's the guy from earlier who we had this word about who then asked for the inhaler, to, which was a way of, he identified himself. So as I went down to him, I just had this sense, I'm not sure this is as physical as we think it is. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this is a spiritual one. So he was on his side and we actually had a paramedic with him. And I said to him, I asked his name. I said, can you hear me? He said, yes. And all I could think to say was, in Jesus' name, start breathing. Mm -hmm. Lungs, start working. Breath, start coming in and out of him. And I just made a mark of a cross on his head. And I just 
prayed a blessing on him and, and just rebuked anything that was happening. And, and I, I surprised myself, really, because I don't think that's... It's not in any training manual, and I wouldn't <laughs> necessarily have normally done that. Yes. But I just, I just kind of knew, you know, when you know, I just knew this is the thing to do. And remarkably, he started to take deep breaths. He's, his eyes, which had rolled up in the top of his head, came back to kind of focus. And slowly, not immediately, but over a few period of time, he, he just sat up and started breathing and started talking again. And we stuck our arms underneath him and he walked this super steep slope, which a lot of guys who hadn't had any breathing difficulties were really struggling with. Yeah, and with I just can, me on one side, you can, can vouch, vouch for, that. for that. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he walked up to the top of this slope and, and, and got, got in his tent. And that was from the Valley of Despair, wasn't it? It's from this place that we call the Valley of Despair. And the idea there being, what do we do when life gets really tough? Yeah. What do we do when we get into despair? And then the beauty, we, we looked after him. We, we did what we, we, we ought to do medically for him. And then... A day later, he was the one who was playing the guitar when we sang some songs yeah, at, at the finish. And mm. so, uh, yeah, I can only look back on that and, and feel a sense of God knowing what's going on and for in his own way, with his own, for his own reasons, reaching yeah. out and just making something clear to us. I think if I hadn't had that word earlier, I really would have dealt with that totally differently and not mm. had a clue what to do. Yeah. So I'm unclear having just returned from it, how much can I tell people what goes on? You know, there's an element of mystery and secrecy about it, which kind of freaks people out because we, we're control freaks. We want to know exactly what's going on, which is absolutely part of the recipe, isn't it? Tell us, tell us what goes on as far as you can. Yeah, so essentially it's an adventure for men in the mountains uh, or, or in a wilderness place. We just need to go where other people aren't because it helps to not be distracted. But also um, it's a journey together. And, uh, you know, one of our core values is the word adventure. And the definition of the word adventure is an activity with an uncertain outcome. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons we don't really talk about what's going to happen is because we then make the uncertain certain. A bit like if you get in a car and someone sort of says to you, okay, here's the journey. And they kind of start telling you turn by turn, gear change by gear change, indicator by indicator, which way you're going to go. That actually not only would become a bit of an overload, it might also become monotonous. And for some people, it might just say, I don't want to do all that. It mm. sounds like a lot of effort. Whereas actually at our end, if you just say, look, just get in the car and turn the ignition on. And so if someone does that and say, okay, so now reverse and then turn around and then go left. Okay, great. I can do all that. And so not only do we help, does it help us retain the information and just kind of follow instructions, it also helps us let go of this idea that we have to remember the whole journey and be aware of the big picture. Mm-hmm. When actually often what we need to really focus on is the small detail of the step in front of us. And for a lot of men, for a lot of humans, letting go of control, letting go of knowing is a tough thing. I, I certainly find it really hard. Mm. I hate not knowing. And so one of the things that I think is important for us to learn in terms of faith is we don't really know why things happen. We don't really know why good people struggle, mm. why evil happens. I, I don't really get a lot of that. I can come up with some answers which are a little bit of an explanation, but mostly they're a bit lame. And actually the reality is I just don't know. Mm. But I don't know if I'm meant to know because I'm not God. And if I did know, maybe I would be trying to be like God. Whereas he knows, and like a good parent, as it Corrie Ten Boom, I think he said, she said to her father, uh, you know, what, why does God not tell us more? And he said, uh, when you go on a train, when do I give you the ticket? He said, do I give it to you be, a, a week before? She said, no. He said, do I give it to you in the car on the way to the station? No. Do I give it to you when we're going through a turnstiles? No. He said, I give it to you just before you go on the train, just before you need it. 
Mm. And why is that not a problem for you? And she suddenly realized that, yeah, if I truly trust God, like I would trust a good father, mm. why would I ask for the ticket so far in advance? I didn't need yeah. it. He's got it. And so I think that's what we're trying to instill a little bit of that in guys. And also just reintroduce a sense of adventure in a world that is risk adverse and hugely safety conscious in the terms of, I think, a little bit over safety conscious. I'm so with you. I can't stand the safety consciousness. And the, uh, what health and safety? If, if you're listening and you're from the health and safety industry, God bless you. But it's uh, it's needed, isn't it, at some level? But it's quite crushing as well. And we we were made, we were wired for adventure, and and that has been sort of somewhat crushed out of us, hasn't it? Well, I think the big problem now is that we report everything after the effect, so it's all hindsight. And mm-hmm. of course, in hindsight, things could change. But in the moment it's a very different scenario and what we're losing i think is the ability ability to be wise in moments we now judge everything backwards and say well look you shouldn't have done that but at the time it feels the right thing to do and of course we need wisdom we want to learn on wisdom but i also need to practice putting myself in situations where i have to make some key decisions under pressure so that i can learn how to make good decisions under pressure Mm. and if all i'm going to do is sit around and be intimidated by what's going to happen when i'm judged backwards I probably wouldn't bother getting out of bed because I'm going to get make the first mistake when I put my socks on. And so I actually think it's important for us to, yes, of course, be risk aware. and we, Everything we do is risk assessed to the, to the right standard. And we have mm-hmm. guys who are qualified know what they're doing. But the point really is not to reassure people that it will be okay the whole time because how do we know that? And if there's one thing COVID, I think, has taught us is we have no idea what's going to happen next month, next week. Nobody in the world, no, no leader, no army, no politician has got an idea how to deal with this pandemic. And so if anything, we should be even more assured that actually crazy things can happen. And so rather than be afraid of that, I can just accept that and then move on, just move into it or just move beyond it and look at what's going to happen in the craziness, what's happening in the storm, not necessarily to say, I better not go on the boat because it might get stormy. Mm. Yeah. Now you've done it with thousands of men. I don't think anyone's died. So I guess, you know, that would be... A very very bad thing and that would kibosh the whole ministry so as long as people aren't dying um if things go wrong then that that's just part of life isn't it and, and I, i'm guessing you've got so many stories you, you because of confidentiality you can't share but you must also have a fair number that will really inspire us that you can share that you've got permission for can you give us a few of those yeah so we I, I, yeah i don't know how many thousands of guys i've taken away personally but as the movement is tens of thousands but we've in the uk we've actually recently done the math i think it's 99.6 percent of the people we've taken away has said it's one of the best things we've ever done in their life wow. so bear in mind we're taking some risks mm. it's pretty epic the result so i kind of lean on that and think okay i think we're doing the right thing even though uh, if you play it forward, people might be nervous about what we go into. Mm. But some of the stories, I mean, I'll just speak generically. So we have continually stories. In fact, let's just say yesterday, we had stories yesterday from guys who were trapped in addiction, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, feeling a complete breakthrough from that. We had mm. a guy talking about going to find his children. He'd had children with different women mm. and he had lost touch with them and he had this sense of, a, a rejuvenated passion to go and find those children and, and try and re-engage with them in a way that's appropriate. We had a story of a guy who at one point in his life had wanted to kill, had been actively out to go and kill his own father because his father had done something appalling to his sister, to, to yeah. the father's daughter. And, and he felt this new sense of love and, and forgiveness for his dad. 30 years, I think, since he last had any contact with him or some time like that. We had yeah. a guy who 
has been into some quite dark stuff in his life and really struggled with depression, suddenly say that through this experience, it was like a crack of blue light had opened in the sky in his gray world. Mm. And he said he wasn't sure about God, but something had opened up. And mm. uh, we had another guy who'd been uh, into prison and been separated, uh, forcibly separated from his family, feel a, sen- the, uh, a sense of guilt and shame lift off him and then a re- rejuvenated sense of wanting to reconnect. We had uh, another story about someone whose father had just died a couple of weeks ago uh, who had this huge sense of grief just lifted for a time and could feel he could breathe again. We've had stories of guys from um, who've had issues with their identity and not knowing who they are, just have this deep sense of feeling that they'd come home and that they're mm. accepted as a man. I mean, that's pretty consistent. We get a lot of stories of guys just saying, I just felt accepted in my version of male, whatever that is. We don't really have a, a version. In fact, you know, the only thing I say is I think real men are guys that can admit when they're wrong, say sorry and ask for help. Yeah. We're not interested in how big your muscles are or whether you can light a fire with a stick or, or you know, whether you've got tattoos or, or, or you've got a bank, big bank balance or what car you drive. To me, those things are all irrelevant. What's relevant is who are you, who are you and who are you made to be and do you know that? Yeah. What's that, that old cliche of you know, the two greatest days in your life, the day you're born, the day you find out why? Yeah. And I think we could translate that to, to, to what we might call masculinity. What is masculinity? Well, I don't know because it's so different for everybody. But it's, it's something about men stepping into who they're supposed to be and mm-hmm. not being afraid of that and also not discoloring that because it's so confusing for them. And so they're the sort of stories we see, I mean, countless, countless times. And as I was sort of telling those stories, maybe you get the impression that not, not everybody that comes, in fact, a lot of people that come don't really have some sense of faith beforehand, organized faith, structured faith, or even an idea of God. We get a lot of atheists. In fact, I had one atheist come up to me once and say, oh, I'm annoyed with you, I am. <laughs> and I said, why is that? And he said, uh, well, I'm an atheist, obviously. I said, oh, okay. He said, yeah, you know, I'm atheist. And my family's atheist, always atheist. And, uh, you know, that's where I'm happy with that. Don't believe in any of it, mate. He said, but I'm annoyed. I said, okay, why? He said, well, because you've kind of challenged us with this idea that is there a God and, uh, you know, obviously the answer is no, but then I realized that uh, you said, well, you know, maybe try praying. Well, I, I thought, no, it's a waste of time. And I remembered that when I lost my job and when my mum got cancer, I, both times I, I prayed. Well, what kind of atheist prays? Yeah. And he said, the thing is now, the I'm, 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 reason I'm annoyed is I've got to do something about it. Mm. I think it's going to hurt me too much. It's going to cost me too much. Yeah. And he went away and I thought, he's got it more than most people I've ever met, certainly more than many Christians I've ever met. This good news that there is something out there, there is hope, there is a God who loves you, is so significant that it's annoying because it's going to cost us. And when I'm sitting on my balcony with my fine wine and cigar, that good God is going to show up and say, is this it? Is this really what you all you hope for? And the reality for me is no way. This is lame. This is so temporal and so shallow and so base and so par fleeting. I want another glass of wine later. I mean, it just will be come and go. But what I really want is something that's going to bring light into my life, into a grey world. I really want to see blue sky when it's, when it's claggy. I really want to be able to forgive people who've hurt me. Yeah. And so that's the kind of adventure we go on with guys. And we take any guy, any man. We have all shapes and sizes, all walks of life. There's no, no one's eliminated. Come, that's our message. Come and let's go together and we'll see. We'll just find out. We'll just see what happens. And uh, I trust that God 
is so real. He does what he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. It's not really, not really up to us. We just try and set the scene by walking in the wild. Beautiful. You know, you shared those about, you just listed off about eight different types of bloke and well what they met with yesterday where they were literal people that we were with yesterday and under 24 hours ago who are profoundly impacted that happens every single time you take men out in the mountain it has yeah. happened in the past it will happen in the future i think loads of people lots of people will be listening to this and either for them or they know people around them that are at that life stage of is this it is this it and may you, through James's words, sort of feel the whisper of God's spirit saying, no, come on, there's more, step up. And, and, mm. and just one of the ways you can do that, one of the ways would be to, to join us on one of these adventures. And, and it's not just men, is it? I mean, it's men on XCC, but is there, is there you started a ladies version? Yeah, so uh, the, the movement, the 4M movement, also runs uh, something called Arise, which is for women, and we're just, we're just trialing that in the UK. I mean, my passion personally is for men because that's, as I told you earlier on about my experience growing up, and also I think there's a, men have had it, had it their own way for so long. Men are, men are the cause of most of the problems in the world. Men are doing awful things, and we regularly read in the newspapers. If you go into any prison, uh, you know, obviously a male, female, but most of the prison population are male. Um, you go and speak to most police officers. Who do you deal with most days? Men. Uh, yeah. Look on the crime sheets. It's men. Look yeah. at the broken families. It's men leaving. Mm. And so, although I think we've had it our own way for so long, I don't think that the solution is to uh, try to kind of take the the eye of focus entirely off men. I think we actually need to ask men to step into yeah. what it is they should have been doing for so many years that they weren't doing. So rather than say you've been naughty, go and sit in the corner. I think it's worth saying you've you've been misdeploying yourself for so long. Can you please start deploying yourself properly? You're supposed to be doing this. And I think that's the stuff for men. There's obviously something for women, which has arised. It's on our website and there's links to that. That will be a, a similar process. It's outdoors, it's wild, it's experiential. But I think it's a different process because mm -hmm. in my experience, I just don't think um, women or, you know, again, I haven't met all women, haven't met all men, so who knows. But the, the women that we're speaking with to have a sense that there's a different approach. That yeah. It's a similar thing. We, we want to be out, outdoors. We want to have an adventure, but, but they need a different angle. So we've tried to set something up which has a different angle. But for me, the main passion is those men. And, and as you were speaking earlier about, you know, it does happen every time. And maybe you're listening thinking, I know a man who needs this. And I think it's a bit like that Narnia thing. You might be sitting, listening to this as well thinking, I probably don't need this, but my brother does or my mate does, my neighbor does. Mm. And there's that sense always by which, remember, is it Aslan or, or in Narnia, there's that thing of further up and deeper in or or deeper up and further in, I can't remember which one it is, but there's a sense by which we're always being called into more. And I think comfort is killing yes. our faith, especially in, in the UK and in the Western world. Mm. And I think this idea that we've allowed the gospel to be translated, the good news of Jesus to be translated into celebrity style status comfort, that me having a better house and a bigger car is somehow God's main purpose for me. Mm. I think it's kind of an irrelevant purpose. I, I think it's great to have those things if they, if, if they arrive, and I don't have any problem with them at all. But what I do think is that if that's your view of what God does, our God's pretty small. He's essentially a kind of bank manager who just doles out bigger bank balances to people. Mm. I think he's an adventurer. And I think what the call of Jesus Christ, the compelling call and the frightening call, is that it's what Henry Nouwen calls the downwardly mobile call. One to say, this is going to cost more and more because it's less and less of you and more and more surrender. And in my experience, I'm rubbish at surrender. I find it really hard to say sorry and to 
admit when I'm wrong. I'm constantly trying to protect myself and to reinforce my own narrative and to make my perspective the one that's the most valid. But my perspective is also hugely flawed. And I think the reality for us in the West is we've got to get a grip of that in our faith and start using our language to, to talk about how we want to love and prefer others. And if we're going to do that, we have to learn how to endure a bit more hardship ourselves. How do we go without so others can have? And if we can learn that, I think, Simon, you're, you know, I'm preaching to somebody who's, who's exemplified this in so many ways. But if we can also learn that it's not really about me, it's more mm-hmm. about you, suddenly uh, that's attractive, really attractive and um, a hugely enriching place, isn't it, to, to be able to split your chocolate bar in half and share it with someone. It's far better than eating the whole thing on your own and getting fat. Yes. And I think the reality is that that's what we want to do in the mountains is what happens outdoors naturally. You make a cup of tea and you offer everybody the hot water. Mm. it's just natural yeah so let's do that in the rest of our lives too and if we learn and we practice in the hills we might be able to amen look time annoyingly has run out but you've inspired me thanks for doing that buddy and how can people sign up what, what do you want to plug yeah so the website is extremecharacterchallenge.com with an x for extreme hashtag xcc have a look on the website maybe someone be kind enough to put a link somewhere on his stuff but yeah. uh, we'd love to hear from you we're, we're a tiny organization i don't want to get big and famous i just want to keep it for guys who want to get real uh, we keep it understated low-key it's for real people who want to have a real experience so if you're one of those people or you know what a real guy just send him our way and let's see what happens brilliant thanks james well i'm signed up and uh, i hope you will sign yourself up or get someone else that you love that you care for whether they already have a relationship with Jesus or not it's a great way of encountering him for the first time I've seen that this last few days as well so that's it this week guys if you've enjoyed it it'd be great if you gave us a, a, a top quality review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this um, if you want to be in touch with me it's simongilbo.com I'll put all the XCC info in the blurb I want to thank Adam Thomas Steer who was also with me this last weekend for the editing and Mike Sandiman for the mixing and uh, next week another superb guest i can't wait and uh, we'll see you then all right toodaloo